if I were to ask you, who's the most beloved woman in the Bible? Anyone got a suggestion who they would choose? Anyone? Most, most beloved woman? <laughs> woman. <laughs> or as we'll maybe see later, not always. But yeah, <laughs> probably a lot of you would say Mary, right? Okay. Um, if I were to ask who's the most hated woman in the Bible, chances are a lot of you would say Jezebel, right? A few weeks ago, Shannon made a very compelling argument that the Samaritan woman might be the most maligned woman in the Bible. Recency bias. A couple of weeks ago, Mike told us the story of Mordecai, which would lead us to possibly call Esther the most courageous woman in the Bible. Well, today we're going to look at a woman who, in my mind anyhow, might be the most misunderstood and the most disrespected woman in the Bible. We know her primarily through one event, and it's found in First Chronicles. The summation is found in First Chronicles 15, verse 29. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. And it's literally a statement that David wasn't always dressed up. <laughs> the woman we're going to look at is Michael. And it's interesting, as Shannon and Mike and I started to discuss this, doing this series this summer of More Like Us Than We Think, for me, Michael was the, the boilerplate I wanted to follow. Michael was the one that really resonated with me. Because Michael is one of these people we sort of see at the side of an event. And we don't really think about her, so we come to maybe some very quick decisions about her. But the more we dig into it, we see that she's not just sight dressing. She's not just in the background there to make the story whole. She's an actual person with an actual life, but actual experiences, which led to how she would impact and be responding to things as we go along. Throughout the series on characters who are more like us than we think, we've discussed the pitfalls of looking at people as either heroes or villains. And the same is true here. What we see in this story is David is wholeheartedly praising God. And his wife is not at all impressed. In fact, we are told that she despised him in her heart. Larry's choice for the most beloved man in the Bible, David. He's a biblical hero, probably the poster child of biblical heroes. So Michael being in opposition to him, that puts her in the role of villain. That puts her in the role of villain. As such, we may be conditioned to view her as unsupportive, maybe a bit of a shrew, more interested in status and public opinion than she is in serving God. In fact, we might be inclined a little bit to despise her in our hearts, maybe more like us than we think. Michael is permanently defined for us by a really bad moment in her life, potentially the worst behavior that she had ever exhibited. How would we feel if we were defined by our worst moment? If we were defined in everyone's eyes by our worst moment, whether it was indicative of the rest of our lives or not? Would it surprise you to know that this outburst from Michael seems uncharacteristic 
from what we else we were told about Michael? We're going to look at what might have gotten Michael to this very extreme place. And we're going to look at this in two primary phases, leading up to the moment and the moment itself. Well, what do we know about Michael? What do we know about Michael? In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we find out a little bit of the line of Saul. And we find that Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Melchishua. The name of his older daughter was Mirab, and that of the younger was Michael. So we find out that she was a daughter of Saul. We know that she had three brothers and an older sister. As such, she would be at a disadvantage within the family. The brothers would all be groomed for leadership, to be leading the army, and one of them, quite likely the eldest Jonathan, would have been groomed to succeed Saul on the throne. She was the second daughter. Now, the first daughter, she'd be groomed for diplomatic marriages. She'd be groomed to marry other kings, leaders of other nations. She'd be the one set up with the really good dowry. Well, Michael, she was the second daughter. She was the second daughter with all of the sorts of pitfalls that being the second daughter can have. Because all the limelight's on the first daughter, second daughter, a little bit less so. Probably some of you right now are thinking Jan Brady from the Brady Bunch, right? That behavior predates the Brady Bunch by several millennia. As stated, her older daughter, Mara, would be looking to marry well. Prestigious to marry, the daughter of a king. The oldest daughter would have the best prospects and the best dowry. And in fact, we see this in the story, don't we? Merib is offered to David first. She's offered to David first. Now, the context was David's making Saul really uncomfortable because he's really, really popular now with the people. And David is seen as a threat. So how better way to get rid of the threat than to make it look like he's honoring them and have him get killed in the process. Offer him his daughter in marriage, have him get killed in terms of getting the dowry. Oh, it's interesting to note as well, marrying the king's daughter was first suggested by the people as an apt reward for whomever would slay the giant. And that's part of the first Samuel 15 story of David and Goliath. Well, first choice was Merib, the obvious choice. But David declined, saying he was unworthy. Now enters in Michael. Now enters in Michael. In 1 Samuel, verse 18, beginning at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. She loved David. She loved David. Why wouldn't she? We are told in 1 Samuel 17 that he was ruddy and handsome. He'd successfully fought the line of the bear, so we knew that he was brave and courageous. He defeated the giant battles. He was a national hero. He was being talked about and sung about all over the place, so he was a celebrity. On top of that, he was a musician, so he had an artist's heart, an artist's soul. He was the whole package. In short, to use a common cultural reference, David was the bachelor. And she was the one, the unlikely one, who received the final rose. It was the beginning of happily ever after. Or was it? 
or was it? Saul's desire was to do this as a way to trap David. When, it, when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to me, thought, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become a son-in-law. And the idea, the idea, David's to go out, get the foreskins of 100 Philistines. He's to go out and fight his way, fight his way to the dowry. There's no way he's going to survive this. Problem solved. Problem solved. Well, the difficulty was David was successful. David was successful. He won the battle. He marries Michael. And Michael loves David, which makes the problem even worse. He was still supposed to be a pawn. But now she's a partner. Now she's a partner. Verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord is with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. And we see that Saul's paranoia, Saul's concerns about David, Saul's fear of David grows and grows and grows and grows. To the point where he starts making plans. Over to, over to verse chapter 29. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid on the bed, covering with a garment and putting some goat's hairs to the head. When Saul sent men to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and he told them, bring him up to me in his bed that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? Happily ever after turns into a reality very quickly where Michael has to choose between her father and her husband because there's no reconciliation between the two of them. Saul was out to kill David and Michael intervenes, right? It's Michael who warns him. Michael learns the plot. She warns David. Michael chooses David over Saul David escapes due to Michael, but Michael has to face the consequences. And the consequences are pretty dire. Chapter 25, verse 44, but Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Palthiel, son of Laish, who's from Galen. Instead of happily ever after living with David, Michael ends up separated from David, quite likely estranged from her father, and living with another man. Well, this is the last we hear of Michael for several years. Depending upon how long David was in the wilderness, and I've read various estimates, we could be talking five years, 10 years, 15 years, maybe, till we hear about Michael again. We know that he was in Hebron for seven years after the death of Saul. It's here 
that we hear about Michael again. The context is Saul, Jonathan, and the older sons that we heard about earlier, they all got killed in battle. Saul has another younger son who hadn't been born when he first started before named Ishbosheth. And he's now sitting on the throne. And the country is divided. A large portion of the country sees David as their king and he's ruling in Hebron. The rest of the country thinks the line of succession goes through Saul's heir, which is Ishbosheth, so they are following him. And there's civil war going on. And David and David's followers are prevailing. So we see there are negotiations between David and the opposing commander, Abner. This is an effort to unify Israel. One of David's conditions, one of David's conditions is the return of Michael. Picking up again in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I'll help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I'll make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paliel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahirium. Then Abner said to him, Go back. So he went back. Michael is returned to David after many years. It would appear from Paltiel's reaction that he at least was getting something out of the marriage. Might just have been status for being related to the royal family, but quite possibly was much more. And if so, was Michael possibly benefiting from this marriage as well? After all the turmoil in her early life, had she possibly found a good and a safe space, only to be uprooted, only to be uprooted once again? This reunion was not the reunion of long-lost soulmates like you might see in, in a Hallmark movie. In fact, I suspect Hallmark wouldn't want to do the Michael story because what audience would believe that so much misfortune could happen to one person? This return was not restoring that which had been lost. It would appear that this was for diplomatic, political, potentially personal pride reasons. It was an insult and an affront to David for Saul to take his wife away from him. David recovering from that insult. The country is divided. In fact, Michael's brother is the opposition on the throne. How better to unite the country than to bring the two lines together? To bring the two lines together. This was not for Michael's benefit or at least does not appear to have been done with the motivation of Michael's benefit. Once more, it seems like she was more of a thing or a possession than a person. And what's more, David's moved on. Right? Michael was with Palthiel all this time. David has married other women and has other children. The first part of 1 Samuel 3 
At this point, we read of six wives and six different offspring. What kind of existence could Michael look forward to as she returned to David after all this time? Might it be that what she was leaving behind was superior to what she was moving into? Well, this completes the summary of events leading up to the moment. Let's now look at the moment itself. But for to stop for a second and summarize the life experiences of the woman who watched David proceed with the ark. She was bypassed by her father in favor of her sister. She was given to David as bait in order to bring about his demise. She loves David. She chooses David over Saul to her own peril. She is given to another man in retaliation for choosing David. She lives with the other man potentially happily for several years. She's taken from this life of several years, after several years, and given back to David. Do you know what the recurring theme of being given? Given to David originally by Saul. Now, she was actually involved in desires of that one. Given to Paltiel by Saul. Given back to David by Ishbosheth. Their personhood there? She re-enters David's life in the context of six other women and at least six other children, while she had none. Her life shows the recurring pattern of not being shown any respect, any respect whatsoever. So this is the context. This is the context of the event that we define her by. So let's look at, at the fuller account of the event, as we've already seen the summary. This is in 2 Samuel in chapter 6. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Picking up again at verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more indignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, and no children to the day of her death. Given what you know about Michael now, can you potentially understand why she might have missed what God was doing? When she looked down and saw the progression coming into the city, would she see David as a man after God's own heart? Or David as the man who had broken her heart? Hmm. That puts her in a slightly different light. David is dancing with abandon, and Michael is not approved. Well, why would she possibly not approve? 
Well, David's in the limelight again. That had not gone well for her before. Might that have been a trigger for her? David is seemingly showing no self-restraint, and he's supposed to be a king. Does that track? The statement regarding maids is a really curious one. Had David started to show some of the wandering eye tendencies we see later with Bathsheba? Might it be a reference to the commoner status of some of David's other wives? We know that one was the daughter of a king, so that was probably a political alliance. But we know Abigail wasn't, and the others may have been more commoner status. So it appeared that David didn't only appeal to the eyes of the elite, so it could have been that, that sort of inference. Was she concerned? People might start singing about David again for all the wrong reasons. After all, people singing about David, well, that's what put the whole David Michael roller coaster into motion in the first place. In any event, Michael sees the worst in this, and it brings about a dramatic and a disastrous reaction. And I ask you, what in her relationship with David that we've seen would cause her to instinctively see the best and not the worst? What in her experience with men on the throne, be it her father, be it her brother, be it David, would instinctively cause her to believe that the king was doing what God wanted him to do? Would instinctively cause her to believe that the king was following God, obeying God, serving God, worshiping God? We see it from our vantage point, and it seems obvious to us. Would it be so obvious to her? Our narrative about Michael tends to be that it was obvious that God was doing something here. And she willfully chose to ignore it and to criticize David for it. It's clear she did not recognize what God was doing. But her life experiences might help us to understand why. Based on that, might we be more inclined to show her more compassion, less judgment than we did even 20 minutes ago? If so, are some of us unhappy with that? Isn't it easier to look at the surface and base our opinions on that than to know the background and show compassion? I confess, I've read this account probably a hundred times in my life. It's only till recently that I got below the surface on Michael and saw all the background and started to view her through new eyes. And that's harder work. That is harder work. It is easier to judge than to show compassion. I want to specifically interject something here. Showing compassion and understanding for why she had done what she did does not mean it was okay. Does not mean that she was in the right. She was still in the wrong. We can understand why she was in the wrong. But that doesn't mean that she was in the right. We sometimes confuse compassion with approval. And that is not what is happening here. I'm not saying we can approve of what she did, but we can understand it. Compassion recognizes getting over something, getting past it or getting through it, whatever it might be, might be a long and a complicated process. 
did not appear that Michael was able to get over, past, or through the pattern of disrespect she'd experienced. And as a result, she missed what God was doing, and the consequences of that were severe. Things would not be the same between her and David. She would never have a child. No, she hadn't had a child to date. She's probably getting on in child-bearing years. So that may not be God's judgment. It might be more God did not show his mercy and open her womb like he did with some others. She would likely live out the rest of her life in virtual isolation. Her story is a tragedy of epic proportions. Does it reflect ours? Do we have things in our lives which cause us to miss what God is doing? Has there been a pattern of disrespect in our lives which causes us not to trust, which causes us to see the worst? Those things are our context. But our context is not an excuse. She was out of line. She did not see what God was doing, and there were consequences. Her response was influenced by her life experiences, was not controlled of them any more than ours are. They are our context. We need to know what to do to overcome our context. Michael is a lot like us and vice versa. We don't need to end up as badly as she seemed to. We don't need to use our past to justify what we do in our present. May we have eyes to see what God is doing and more so resolve to enter in. Thank you.